Hey, welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in my office, joined by Mike, as we are recording without Peter and Ben again. I believe they are both working. They're, they're doing some sort of job they have where apparently you can't just in the middle of the day record a podcast. I don't know what kind of job this is, what kind of labor they have to do. It seems like cruel, maybe even unusual work to have to have. So we're here. It's uh, a little after noon on a Thursday. We have been teaching and we're now done teaching for the day. And we're going to be talking a little bit today about Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, This will be coming out in February, which is Black History Month, but we just had uh, the observation of uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And so there will be some tie-in between those things. And we read for today a letter from a Birmingham jail, which I teach in ethics. I use each semester. And then also something, Mike, you had shared, the story of how Michael King Jr. became Martin Luther King Jr. So we might reference that article or um, King's essay, A Letter from a Birmingham Jail. I'll just mention briefly as part of this intro, we are part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. We're very happy to be part of that network. There's a number of... uh, other po- episode or a podcast that we listen to ourselves. Uh, there's a wide variety of topics that they cover. So go to 1517.org, check that out. At least I think it's .org. Hopefully I have that right. Check out some of the other podcasts. Let us know what you're listening to, what you like. Uh, it's always fun to, to find out and to know. Make sure you keep coming back to us, though, right, Mike? Yeah, that. I mean, that's priority number one. Mike, what are you listening to on 1517 lately? Any any particular podcast? I'm behind a little bit, but, uh, you know, I, I was getting in. I had not been listening to Ringside, so I started at the beginning. So that's kind of where I'm I'm at right now a little bit. All right. And I have been, as I almost always am, uh, knee-deep in Virtue in the Wasteland. I enjoy uh, that format and their topics. And I think we're both regulars, Mike, uh, thinking fellows. I, I would say there's... It's been a long time since there's been a week that they've uploaded something that it's taken me a week to listen to it. So uh, find what you like and consider listening to something else. As always, rate, review, subscribe, share, comment, email. We appreciate it so much as you help us expand the conversation and uh, get word about the podcast out there. I will say as of this recording, now I just said this in what we recorded before this. We recorded with Mark Brown before this on Intro to Theology. But as of today, which is Thursday, January 24th, we are at 96 ratings and reviews on iTunes. The goal set for us for this coming October, so a ways away, was to reach 100. And you guys have just been amazing and have gotten us up to 96 right now. Uh, So just four of you are going to get us to our goal. Our other goal was download-related. And we have made a nice jump in relationship or relation to that, too. So we really appreciate it. Please do subscribe if you don't yet. It helps us get a sense of who all is listening, our numbers with that. Um, but rate, review, comment, email. We appreciate it a lot. I'm going to just make it like it sounds like we only have like a dozen v- listeners. We do actually have more than. Oh, yeah. We've been doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah. we. Uh, so just maybe some context out there, like how many. For episode, like how many people listen to an individual episode? It's more than a hundred. Oh yeah, thousands. We are we are yes. we are at this month. We're possibly you know getting close to uh, the uh, the eight thousand download mark. Mm-hmm. I think it's possibly attainable. So 
So four is not that big of a number. Right. Yeah. I would hope we can get four of you. Otherwise, uh, I'll just make my kids do it, I suppose. But I'd, I'd prefer I if, you, if you can only do it help. once. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but we do appreciate also, it. Also, they have to like you and the podcast. Yeah. And, and both of those, probably they don't. So you have anything you want to say about your Apologetics Academy, Mike? Sure. Quick, just quickly, we are having an Apologetics Academy for a week uh, in June here on the campus of Wisconsin Lutheran College in Milwaukee. Um, uh, wlc.edu slash apologetics or just email me and I can fill you in if you're interested in coming uh, in the, this beautiful city of Milwaukee. It's a fun city in the summer and learn some apologetics. Um, I'll be teaching and so will Carrie Keene of the physics department here. So you'll have a smart guy too. Yeah, he. I agree. Carrie is very smart. Now you can go back, listen to the episode he did with us. Um, and he showed how smart he was. He convinced us this is not easy to do. I think he convinced us both. I hope he convinced you too, Mike, but that the earth is indeed round. Well, you know what finally got it to me is I saw a picture of what the eclipse, the lunar eclipse would have looked like if the world was flat. And it was just a line across the moon. So now I'm convinced that it actually is. Um, it is a sphere. That was uh, pretty cool. You went out then for that, for the lunar I did. eclipse? I yeah. did. And I was expecting just a line because I was a flat earth person. Yeah. And now I'm convinced. So. Yeah. Well, hopefully our listeners got to see it, too, if you were looking. But, Mike, why don't you get us our disclaimer? This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out look around and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. us to our main topic you might be surprised to hear that this is normally when we go to the free-for-all but we wanted to get right into the main topic today a uh, we have a number of things going on today um, some of you may who follow the college may have known that the college lost a student who unfortunately uh, went home to heaven uh, got back to campus right before break started and we have a uh, memorial for that student today that Mike and I will be participating in at 6 p.m. Uh, but also kind of have some, some other college responsibilities. So we, we don't want to go too long with the free-for-all, but we also did uh, want to just kind of jump right into the topic because there's a lot of places we could go with this, and we didn't want to end up short-changing short the topic with the free-for-all. That being said, we're going to ease into it because Mike has, a, I believe, a shout-out, yes, some news, Mike, and a joke for us. Well, maybe not a joke, but um, I have a new nephew, um, Emily and Brent, habits had a baby boy while we were recording uh, our previous episode and they are listeners of the show were and, they listening when the baby was born uh, i would imagine so and the the baby's boy is luther thomas habits now he's named after uh thomas who is um my sister's brother-in-law 
and also a listener of the show, or at least was in the past. And Luther, I believe, is comes after uh, Luther Vandross is what I would imagine. He's I don't know that for sure, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure the kid's named after Luther Vandross. But anyway, um, on to the topic of Martin Luther King. You said Jr. you had a joke before. That was my joke. Oh, the Luther Vandross Luther thing. Vandross. Oh, okay. I thought you meant like a knock-knock joke. That this joke good Lutheran I... family would you okay. know, name their kid Luther. Like, a, there's nothing it. wrong with naming your kid Luther after Luther Vandross, but it would be odd if you were Lutheran and you named it after Luther Vandross and not Martin Luther. Right. I got you now. It was, it's funny in retrospect. Um, Mike, uh, we kind of have a little bit of an outline of where we might go with this to hopefully keep us somewhat focused. But maybe, uh, I don't think we have to do a lot on Martin Luther King Jr. in general, but I think it's obviously something just overview to give a little bit on, you know, his importance uh, to the America that we are today. Um, if you go to Washington, and as as capitals are want to do, um, you will see memorials, displays that show the uh, key events of that country's history, key people or players in that country's history, we can think of the Washington Memorial, Jefferson, Lincoln. One of the newer ones is Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, this is someone who is just part of the American psyche. I would I would say if I were to simply use the phrase, I have a dream, people are going to make a connection, right? He has given a speech that in many ways has helped shape American um, rhetoric, thinking. Um, it's part of our cultural, social political identity. Um, when we think of the movements of the 20th century, obviously the civil rights movement was a very important one. Uh, labor movements, this was a, a time of, of great change, both the 18th and the 19th century. But Martin Luther King Jr. being important too for uh, making the dialogue and then the political and, and social, cultural, even ecclesiastical action um, take place to take the next step after the abolition of slavery. And really, uh, you know, between Jim Crow laws and, and just purposeful um, housing arrangements, an America that wasn't quite yet probably what we think America should be, that, that maybe wasn't living up to the ideals that it expressed at its founding. And, and there was always tensions, even from the founding, of what we held up as our ideals and what we value and what's important to us, and, and how well we were able to practice that, whether that was economic concerns getting the best of us, racial concerns, social concerns, cultural concerns, yes, even religious concerns. And these things often got all tied up into one, and we see in Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, all of these things kind of coming together in a head. He was a, a Baptist pastor, so we see the church involvement, and um, the civil rights movement had churches that were very involved in this, both mainstream white churches, mainline, I should say, denominations, um, but also, obviously, historically black churches. Um, he could speak to the kind of economic realities of the time and the disparities. Uh, you know, a quote that, that King liked to use that maybe wasn't original to him, it's really hard to track down, is that we have a socialism for the elite and a rugged individualism for the poor, I'm kind of pointing out sometimes the uh, the harsh edges uh, in our economy, and and we still hear debates today about welfare, and, and sometimes corporate welfare gets talked about in a different way than welfare for the poor. <clears throat> um, we see political concerns. Uh, you have political parties that react to or harness the civil rights movement, not, not unfortunately simply because everyone in that party or the leaders of it 
um, was a true believer one way or another, but because they had a voting base or they thought they could expand their voting base, <clears throat> there's just a lot that, that plays into these things. And uh, America at many times in its history has been a tinderbox, just someone waiting to throw a match. I know, you know, 2018, 2019 America, we just can't believe that, right? There's, there's no tensions anymore. Uh, but, but King, someone who, as, as a Christian pastor, still had a great ap- appreciation for someone like Gandhi, um, civil disobedience that is at the same time um, forceful in that it, it demands a fair hearing and that there be the conversation, yet also renounces violence. Um, you know, he really guided the dialogue in a way that, that kept it from taking a more div- divisive and violent turn that it, it easily could have. And, and that's on, on every side of the racial divide, right? That's, that's not just to say you, you, you had maybe a Malcolm X. Um, you had plenty on, on the, uh, those who wanted segregation, uh, who were able to become violent. I mean, you can watch plenty of videos of that um, and read about it. Just a really tense time. And he was willing, he was able to speak in a way um, and we think of some of his iconic speeches that spoke across divides and really to Americans, and I think even made those who who didn't agree with everything he had to say take notice and have to listen and have to wrestle with that. Um, <clears throat> there's some who, you know, they they would say, if you're going to talk about Martin Luther King Jr., where you have to talk about him warts and all, and we're going to get into all of his life. And I think there's some who even rather unfairly at times will try to dismiss what King had to say or what he did based upon um, his politics, or maybe he was wrong on this or that doctrine. Um, we're Lutherans. He was a Baptist pastor. There's things we clearly disagree on. Um, maybe there were things in his life. He wasn't perfect. I, I think uh, there's been a few people who weren't perfect uh, outside of Jesus Christ. But um, what we want to do today is to kind of get at his thought, um, what he's building upon. He's drawing upon uh, a lot of thinkers who have gone before him, He's not a parochial thinker by any means, um, but also just the impact upon America and maybe where we're at still today as an America that in many ways is divided intentionally or unintentionally, um, consciously or unconsciously. And so what I thought we could maybe lead with, Mike, is you had a, a blog post for MLK Day on Let the Bird Fly, and you got at maybe some commonalities between Luther and Martin Luther King Jr., but you led with... Um, comparisons that are maybe interesting but not all that helpful. Anything from that maybe you'd like to bring up? Sure, maybe just one comment beforehand. I think um, as a white guy who um, was born in the late 70s... I'm looking at Mike right now and I can confirm white guy. I have not seen his birth certificate though. um, Just, it's hard for us because we learned about the civil rights movement and a lot of it was literally in black and white. And it was something that was taught to me as something that was shameful in the past, that things have changed. And even though I was only born, what, 10 years after his assassination, in my mind, it was a generation or two ago. And that's been a hard thing for me to switch in my mind it's certainly not hard for my black brothers and sisters 
you know, literally. Lit- I mean, just to think about, uh, I saw something about uh, he, King was born in 1929, the same year as Anne Frank and Barbara Walters. Like, there's people still alive who were born well before, um, not well before, but before uh, Martin Luther King Jr. So it's not the distant past. And I think that's something that I have to admit that's a little bit hard. And then if you put... Statues, and we sometimes excuse things away because... Right. They, they maybe feel ago. like distant. That was I mean, in the grand scheme of human history, slavery is not distant. Past. Right. And yet it was 100 years between uh, the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. You know, uh, hopefully it doesn't take another 100 years, um, but I'm afraid we're in a sinful world and there's always going to be trouble. Um, yeah. So what's always fascinated me about Martin Luther King Jr. is, first of all, why his name, you know, is that just a coincidence that I'm Lutheran and the guy that I hear about every other day, Martin Luther King Jr.? Um, just happened to have the same name. So I was always fascinated with that. And then also fascinated with uh, the idea of the the differences between Martin Luther King Jr. and then maybe the Black Power Movement, Uh, you know, just using a kind of a generic name for, unfortunately, for maybe inaccurately for a whole swath of uh, of people in still today, but also in in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, That he was very critical of them and why. And it kind of dawned on me, first of all, um, that he was critical because he was coming from a long string of Christian thinkers who truly believed that, yes, there's sin, but that there is forgiveness and that people actually do change in the sense that, and he wouldn't put it in these terms, this is where we go different paths, but a person is the symbol. Um, that a sinner and a saint at the same time. And the second thing is that the civil rights movement, justice, fairness, equality for all, is based on a morality that is objective that comes from a, a God who loves us. And people are created in that image and therefore have value. Now, I can totally understand um, without you know trying to be... Um, I can't sympathize, obviously, but I can understand how that comes off as naive to certain people. Like, you're just going to wait for people in power to just give up their power and be fair to you. You're going to be waiting a long time. And you have to take power. And so we're in a, uh, an ethical situation where might makes right. And we've been on the wrong side because we didn't have the might for a very long time. And the only way you're going to change thing is by power, by might. And you know what? Yeah, practically speaking. But King held on to, you know, this morality that um, and that I think is fairly remarkable. And so it's fascinating to me, those differences philosophical that are philosophical, but also theological. And then I'll, you know, I'll go back to you, Wade, but just, just, uh, you know, another thing that's remarkable is he died at 39. We're 40 and we haven't done much with our lives. I'm 41. With, you know, comparatively so, you know, and, um, so when someone, I did get a, uh, a Google mini for my office and I can, I can tell it to play music. Well, that's pretty powerful too. Yeah. That's, that's something. Um, but just that, that you see him, he, he just speaks like an old man, you know, and he's got the rhetoric uh, that, 
that um, um, just uh, oozes wisdom. And so you you almost think that he, he was quite a bit older. But what a tragedy that, and what would have, what would have been if he made it to 50, 49, 59, 69, 79, if he was still alive today, um, what would be different? Quite a bit, I think. And it's, it's an interesting part of, of history there. And I think one of the interesting things, too, as we think about King and as we think about other political or social movements, uh, civil movements in America, is that, you know, sometimes we, as Lutherans, can default to Romans 13 in a way that Romans 13 isn't really applying to our setting. Uh, we rather intentionally, as a country, don't have a monarchy, right? That was kind of a sticking point early on. And... uh it, it is interesting to me, too, that sometimes people who will quick jump on Romans 13 to shut down disagreement um, will then, up, you know, praise the founding fathers in the right. American it, Revolution. I mean, yeah, if you're, if, you're gonna, if you're going to praise America for throwing off tyranny because of voting, you know, and some maybe unfair taxes, and then turn around and say this civil disobedience is wrong— I think you're going to have to check yourself on both both occasions. And and really what King was doing in the Civil Rights Movement did well is this was not revolution or to overthrow a government. This was actually pretty good citizenship. It uh it called us back to, you know, core American ideals, the very things that those who would appeal to the founding fathers would uphold and to um really what were constitutionally enshrined rights. When you look at the history of voting, sometimes we easily default to, well, everybody has a vote, it's democracy. Well, not always everybody has a vote. Sometimes there's voter intimidation. Sometimes there's, um, you know, gerrymandering is an issue in our own day. Um, there's been all sorts of voter suppression in, in the history of voting, um, not only in the South, but especially in the South, but then also um, in industrial cities like our own, uh, as as people move north, you had the Great Migration. Uh is a lot more complicated than we want to think that it was as Americans. The history of representation, um, issues of, of human rights, these were things that we were not necessarily living up to, and I don't know that we ever will perfectly live up to it. Uh, we, would be, that we would perhaps be a utopia if that were so. Um, and so did so in a way that, uh, you know, we would say still today you have the, the right to protest, and as a Christian— if you think something is unjust and contrary to your conscience, you fine, act on that, but be willing to take the consequences. So I might be a conscientious objector to a war. I understand I might spend time in jail or prison then, or I might be sent to a, a non-combat position. Uh, King writes a letter from a Birmingham jail. Uh, he didn't cause destruction, and he was willing, and, and many others with him, to suffer the consequences for, for pushing the dialogue. And so I just want to get that out there early on too because sometimes people will go to that and I don't know that it's the most helpful argument and I really think we could do a bunch of episodes on Romans 13 because there's a long history on how we can read Romans 13 and apply it but uh oh go ahead Mike no I something just, on that because I'm about to jump so whatever well I, I just the the letter from Birmingham jail and this is what fascinates me more than anything is he makes the case two Christian pastors using Christian theologians. This guy's well-read. This guy's got a doctorate in theology from Boston University. Um, he knows his stuff, and he is in the long line 
of these Christian thinkers of Western civilization. And kind of bothers me a little bit when um, we split this West versus East or West versus everybody else. Western civilization, much like Christianity, is for everybody. And Dr. King makes his arguments based on... And what you mean by there is the idea of liberal ideas, of of human rights, of... of, um, the idea of freedoms. Yeah, and we're not talking about necessarily my Western culture. Or, yeah, or, yeah. Right. I'm talking about these these ideas. Judeo-Christian, if for lack of a better term, and that he uses that term multiple times. Um, King does himself, and their ba- his argument is based on this these truths. He does not fall into the trap of saying this culture's crap to us. Therefore, its ideas are absolutely wrong. No, he says, these are your ideas. You should have always done this. And so there is a connection between Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr. where they're not trying to break. I mean, Luther's like, this is what the church always said. This is what the truth is. You're not, you're not holding up to the ideals of the church to the Pope. And King is saying that to his white preacher friends. And, and fellow Americans. Fellow Americans and saying... All right, here you know you here's here's Augustine on this, here here's 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 Aquinas. I mean, yep. quite you know, and he does all of this, and that's such a contrast to saying, um, there is no basis for this morality, which would be a secular only view of the world, and if you have a secular only view of the world, and you eventually get into kind of a moral relativism. You may not admit that, but there's something there. Then you end up really having a hard time grounding human rights in anything else than people are in charge. So again, the solution becomes then we get in charge. And he, 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 you know, he points out what, man, I point this out every time in apologetics is, you know, the Nazis never did anything wrong. They just made it legal. And we talk right. about legal pod- positivism and stuff point. like that. And and he, he clearly gets that issue when it comes to, and he's argument for a, for a just law and an unjust law. He's like, you, just because it's posited as a law doesn't mean it's, you know, it's it's just or not. And and he's pretty eloquent in, in a handwritten note that um, became a letter or even a small little, he almost says it's a book because <laughs> yeah. it's so long. But he's thought this through. He didn't have the opportunity to go back and change his words like, like we do on, uh, on computers. Uh, and so it's just, it just really fascinates me. And I want to say to everybody who feels like they're left out of Western civilization, first of all, I'm sorry, it shouldn't be that way. And for my part of not doing better, I'm sorry, but don't throw away these ideals because you are not, have not been, have not had the same privilege as I do, but this is th- this is good basis stuff, and it's for you, and that's what Dr. King I think got, and is part of the reason why he was criticizing some of of people of his own race, who it wasn't because they went too far; it's because their basis was a nihilism or a nihilism, and not the Judeo-Christian creating the image of God forgiveness, love, nonviolence kind of stuff. Or a rhetoric or struggle just limited 
to questions of power mm-hmm. and, and not to justice and, and human value. I, I think uh, I was going to point out, what, you know, he alludes to Hitler and says everything that Germany did under Hitler was legal, but not necessarily just. And he takes that back a little earlier to Thomas Aquinas, where he notes from Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in the eternal law or in eternal law and natural law. And I think that's helpful for understanding. He weaves in, um, I mean, appeals to human sympathy. He has a line in there that always strikes students when he says, when I have to concoct, when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? And I think that is a very effective thing in Christianity and in political dialogue to say, how do you explain this? Why doesn't this come naturally to a child to understand this if this is how human beings should be and should be acting with one another? But maybe just a little bit of background then on that letter from a Birmingham jail. As Mike alluded to, he's writing in response to um, fellow pastors, I believe maybe one rabbi too, who had said, you know, now's not the time for the civil disobedience. We're just going to we're going to get people too upset. It's going to set us back. Um, and they wanted a much more conservative approach. And he says, basically, to adopt that approach is to become responsible for the injustice uh, that is taking place. And um, and I think that argument he makes, he then roots theologically and philosophically um, in the West. And in the article you shared, you know, Mike, it talks about how um, in his speeches and sermons, he would kind of take us back to the Parthenon. He would take us back to Rome and say, look, this is, all this stuff is in the best of our history and our thought in the past, and what we're doing is consistent with it. If we can maybe jump back now, um, because this is a podcast that gets oftentimes pretty heavy on theology, um, I kind of have there next on the uh, the the outline for us, Mike, is that now racism itself is a somewhat newer concept in human history and that a lot of it comes out of the Enlightenment where you just, where it was decided you would classify races so that you could rank them, which is obviously a very problematic thing for a, a Christian. Um, you then have kind of a, a social Darwinist um, contribution to this of, you know, well, the, the best race is the one that is doing the best or is advancing, that it's kind of inherent to human nature, that some are going to dominate others. And you hear this, if you study American history, there's plenty who will express this in economic and racial and cultural terms of, well, there's always some who are in charge and some who are subject, and it will be used in a way to to condone treatment that isn't necessarily consistent with Christianity. And this is what Paul is doing with, with Philemon, isn't it? To say to Onesimus and, and Philemon, you know, is this the best way for us to be conducting ourselves as as Christians? It may be legal, but is it the best way for us as Christians to be conducting ourselves? But maybe if we can just go back, it's not as if um, there were not ethnic divides throughout the history of the church. So maybe if we can step back from speaking about race right now to ethnicity. You know, Romans didn't have slavery like America had slavery that was a racial slavery. Um that wasn't a concept they had, and you could have slavery across ethnicities. But there was already in the early church clear ethnic tensions when it comes to the distribution of food in the Jerusalem church, and you have some um, Jews uh, from Israel who were having issues with Jews from the diaspora, with Greek Jews. 
Um, we see tensions between Jew and Gentile as people are coming into the church. Um, in the West, we'll have Italians want an Italian pope, and the French want a, a French pope. Um, that's just something that has been, uh, it's rooted in the church's history. It's been a struggle in the church's history. And we don't really, as Christians then, uh, help our cause if we pretend that the church has somehow always been above these tensions. It, the church has been at its best when it's addressed them. And, and this is one of the big differences between the New Testament and the Old Testament, is, is there were boundaries set in the Old Testament. Um, there was a chosen nation from which the Savior was to come. Uh, but with Christ's death, the, 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 the curtain in the temple is, is torn in two. Peter is told, right, kill and eat. You can now eat like a Gentile. Um, Dr. Brown preached today in chapel on Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, and how um, these ethnic divides were now gone. And, and pr- there were non-Jewish proselytes, Gentile proselytes in the Old Testament too, so I don't want to overplay my hand there. But the fact is that even in the church, there has always been these tensions um, uh, and uh, I don't know, Mike, anything you have on that? Well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, the church is the place where um, all sins are really obvious, right? Because there's always going to be somebody who's going to point out these these sins. Um, and then there's you someone ha- called to do that. Yeah, and you have the, <clears throat> you have then also the the rightfully so people saying. The Christian church is hypocritical, right? So you put yourself up there as the people of God, you're going to be judged as the people of God, right? <clears throat> Hold to, held to a higher standard. And so we can point out, I mean, the heinousness of uh, justifying slavery, justifying um, racial whatever. And especially Thru- American slavery, yep. which just once again was perhaps the worst form of slavery practiced like, in history, in that... Right, your your children were still going to be slaves. Um, this this was racial slavery. Um, it it really w- it it was in many ways more problematic than Roman slavery. Yeah, and I you know I mean not that it, Roman slavery was ideal or just clearly not. But what we're saying is like, hey, we beat you. Now you you're going to be our, our servants, and you could earn your freedom. And there was a, instead of, oh, I'm just going to take you. And you're going to be mine. I mean, obviously, whole family yeah. line now will be slaves. And and, and the brutality. It's it, we. I do have to sit down and say, okay, the first time we deal with slavery in in the introduction to scripture here on campus, like, just so you know, these are two different things. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, what is more inclusive than Christianity? I don't think anything. And I made this argument before, and I, I'm sticking to it that even the Christian liturgy that really is Jewish. Um, is the most ecumenical, most diverse thing that we've, the world's ever seen, I think. Um, there is a connection there within the church's worship that is beyond anything that we'll ever know. And, and if worship is kind of the, uh, or intends to be sort of a reflection of heavenly worship, then that makes sense, right? So, and, and that's why I get a little passionate about uh, worship and, and don't like the argument that that specific classic divine service is somehow something that is exclusive when it's the exact opposite. And so Christianity, in general, put that out a little bit more, um, is um, exclusive to be inclusive, right? It's the most inclusive thing in the world. It, it doesn't, it, it literally does not matter about um, 
race or gender. It really doesn't even matter if you're a good person or a bad person. I mean, it really doesn't matter if you're your politics or anything. Uh, it's only <clears throat> exclusive in those who reject it, right? So uh, I think that's 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 such a beautiful thing. And, and when it doesn't get played out in the church, which it never will, because the church is a beggar. Um, it's it's really it's it's double tragic, right? There's a there's a double tragedy there. Um, not only that we would not be open up to sinners that are suffering, but also play into this awful thing called, well, racism or any kind of bigotry at all. At the same time, you know, or if someone asked you, Wade, if you're a racist or a bigot or a prejudice, you would say, yep, and so are you and so is everybody else. We understand that our depraved humanity, whether maybe we're not um, purposely being hateful, but you can't tell me that we don't all judge each other. You can't tell me that we don't all have sinful motives. You can't tell me that we don't all judge. You can't tell me that we, because that's who we are sinners. And that's the commonality we have with everybody across um, all uh, dividing lines. And then the ultimate um, <clears throat> thing that brings us together would be that we are made new in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, right? That, I mean, that's, that's where it's got to be the basis. That love, that value found in justification, I think that's what King got that so many people don't get. And they're beating their heads against a wall trying to figure out how do you change sinners from not being sinners. And I think... I can't remember if it's the Holocaust Museum or what museum it is, but I was listening to something recently, and they were talking about it where um, you could enter this museum that covered racism, obviously, and it, there were two doors. There was the door for the racist and the door for the not-racist, and the door to the not-racist basically went to the exit. <laughs> like, oh, you've got your act together. And then the door to the actual museum as everybody walks through. Uh, we all wrestle with um, all sorts of preconceptions, stereotypes, presuppositions. It's just something to be honest up about. And that's on every side of the racial divide, too. Um, you got it, something about Christianity being exclusive, meaning that uh, right, Christianity is the truth to be inclusive. And I think, you know, this is in the very core of what Jesus sends the disciples out to do, the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, right? Don't just go to the people that are like you, uh, but go to all nations. And so this is something the Church has wrestled with throughout time, too, even how to carry that out, and and right, um, there are, there are missions that bore a lot of fruit that were carried out in ways that we in no way would endorse. Looking at the past, you know, forced baptisms, um, political coercion, so that we can look at areas of the world today and say, oh, they're heavenly, heavily Christian, and they are, and there can be a very active, devout Christianity there. But you look back at how it came about, and sometimes you go. Uh, that you know that's that's not something we we're proud of as as the church maybe uh if we can get a little bit as as how we we talk about these things too um and i've been reading a fair amount for christ and culture and a lot of really interesting books lately one i um am working my way through now is the the color of law and it's about how in america um in the uh early to mid 19th century um with economic boom uh in parts but then also with government attempts to get the economy going again, we sometimes think of seg or of how, well, think of your own community. Oftentimes, our cities or our areas are very racially segregated still today, and not that there's a sign that someone can't live here, 
but things were, um, they've been rather intentionally historically settled in a developed way that there's a homogeny there rather than a diversity. And, and the, the color of law is, is very helpful and good to show, out, show how in many ways the federal government actively worked to encourage this. There was a fear that diversity in a neighborhood would lower housing values, even though studies from the time showed that it could actually increase housing values because you had... A new market. Yeah, you had minorities who wanted to get out of the neighborhood they were in who would actually pay more for a house. But I would say in my own experience just growing up, I'm, um, but here also in Milwaukee, where in Detroit and Milwaukee are two of the more segregated metro areas. Um, in Detroit, after the riots, famously had white flight. But already before the riots, you had um, black tenements where people were to live and then white neighborhoods. Um, and a legacy of this, this, I'm not saying this is necessarily active racism that many people carry out still today, but I think it's something for us to be aware of in, in, a, in an area where King's Calls can still be heard today, is that this is shaped where we live. Um, this is shaped where our churches are. Um, and so as Lutherans, and historically as Lutherans that have had majority white churches, um, where our churches currently are has been shaped about this. As there's been white flight, we've seen a lot of our churches move out, and many of the churches that were um, originally majority white churches now are um, majority black or Hispanic churches as those buildings have been purchased. Um, so it, it affects where our churches are, and then it, it also shapes who we interact with, and I think social media has only amplified this because you in many ways get to to in a um a superficial way in a um uh what's the word i'm thinking for it's not real life it's uh you know um you really get to shape who you listen to and so we can now get our media have our conversations um get our art and music interact largely with people that we agree with which makes it why can social media get so nasty um, when you speak to someone across a divide, it can almost be traumatic for some people because it's not something that they've normally encountered. They, um, for all of our talk of diversity and our appreciation for diversity, many of us can go through much of our day and much of our life with ac without actually encountering real diversity, whether that be religious, economic. I mean, there's people who will drive from work into the city to go to work and not encounter any economic division between their home neighborhood and where they work because they get on a highway and they right they they go 55 miles per hour just through it um and so one thing for us to be aware of with all of this i think then too is uh you know how how our opinions are shaped for instance mps milwaukee public schools didn't cancel school the other day for snow and so some of my kids were upset with that because they go to a, a parochial school in the city that, that cancels when MPS cancels. And I, a lot of people were really upset with MPS for not canceling. And, and most of these people who were upset, um, we're people who our kids would have been fine at home. They would have been well-fed. They would have had good heat. Um, and what a lot of people don't realize, and people can say, well, schools aren't supposed to be daycares. Well, um, for a lot of kids in your wife teaches in a setting where I'm sure she can understand this too, Mike. This is this might be where they get their best meals or their main meals of the day. This might be where they're most comfortable, uh, whether it be with having heat, with having structure. 
um, for a good part of their day. Well, that's an economic diversity that we don't necessarily recognize because we don't encounter it. And I find found my, even myself joking about MPS not closing on social media, but then stepping back and thinking about that, right? How, my my view of them closing or not closing was entirely shaped by my world, right, that I live in economically, socially, culturally, even racially. And I, I think that's something then that as Christians, as Americans, for us to always remind ourselves maybe sometimes we need to, to step back and ask what we're missing or what we're taking for granted or what we simply don't get about another person's experience or where they are, uh, where they're coming from. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. And, and believe me, we're not trying to be like super oversensitive and pat ourselves on the back here by, oh, saying, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> and, and what's not helpful is that every little thing is, um, this is not how King would have defi- defined these things, but everything's divided between victim and victor, right? Or power, it's in a power struggle. I mean, he, he, he did fight against that. And so, you know, every time I use the pronoun he or, you know, whatever, I mean, the, stop it. Just stop it, all right? We're not trying to do that. At the same time, um, we can be really, really, really sensitive about uh, how people interact with us. Like, that was rude. Doesn't that person understand? Um, when it comes to our family, our in-laws, when it comes to uh, our coworkers, our bosses, or anything like that, and we don't even we don't take the time at all to put ourselves in their shoes and say they're thinking in a totally different way, totally different way. Right. So for, for us then to actually stop and think even more so for people who have social and economic or racial differences than us to say, I may think that's not a big deal. Or I may think it's a big deal. And the other person just looks at you like, don't you get it? We do that too. I do that too. And so I don't want to be super oversensitive where everything is going to be, uh, everything's going to be a battle at the other side of the spectrum is I do not want to ignore this, that my words and my, well, just think of, you know, if we're sports guys, just think about how, I mean, I, I do cringe. I've cringed for years a little bit, not cringed as in like, oh, I'm holier than thou, but I'm like, oh, those guys are going to get in trouble. I'm not that pious. But like when the NFL announcer talks about this at this quarterback as athletic and this quarterback as he's more of a stay in the pocket guy, and you're like, Aaron Rodgers runs around pretty well. Why is he not athletic running? You better be careful getting out of the pocket, right? Um, I think of, this is old school, but Donovan McNabb, you know, yeah, he was a great athlete, but to do as a pocket passer, you know, uh. but he always got labeled as this whatever, you know, and, and listen, you know, if I, if I'm a black man, that's not just, oh, that's kind of, I, I see that that's kind of stupid. That's like, could be infuriating to uh. you, right? And so... Um, I think there's a balance there, right? Um, but the basis has got to be, as King said, um, you know, based in human rights, based on a morality that's objective and based on the ultimate morality would be love found in, you know, I think we would both agree in Jesus Christ and not in this victim, victor, <laughs> victim, victor or power struggle, however you're going to play that out in kind of a postmodern uh, philosophy that grind uh, grounds uh, morality basically in either pragmatism or one rule: don't be mean. 
um, and under the guise of justice. I kind of what I have is the the last thing for us to maybe talk a little bit about, Mike, and and I think you're exactly right. I don't think either of us is trying to toot our own horn on this. In fact, I look back at my um, my own life, and there's plenty of stuff where I go, a what was I thinking, and then b how was I so blind to things. Um, and, on uh, any number of things, not oh, just, and, yeah. And, and, and still today, I find myself, you know, question. Th- just the MPS thing is a wonderful example. But one of the things I think that we see rising today that runs contrary to um, King's challenge to America, and I think it also does flow out of, not to just throw post-modernity around, but um, kind of post-modernity's emphasis on power, that it's all about power. Um, you know, there's the empower and the oppressed, is the, the rise of identity politics. And I think this is something that should be troubling to, to most all of us. Um, the, the us versus them um, that has arisen and the idea that everyone needs to be classified and then um, they speak as and for that classification. So if I say something, I'm saying something as a white man, and it has an authority that's commensurate with whatever authority a white man should have. Um, Someone else says something as you pick it. Um, But also an appeal to think politically, um, I would say even in many ways to think religiously, because I think our politics have become our new religion in America, um, that really stifles thought and I think um, loses sight of the very ideals inherent in or at least expressed in our founding documents that King called us back to and then to press forward in. Um, We can see this even in the church uh, as um, some in the church have really started to take a, a, a fortress mentality and we need to hunker down, and often what they mean by church or by us is very much shaped by their experience of the church and who they are and where they are at. And I think that can inhibit our ability to speak to the broader culture. Um, but just in general, to take it away from the church, just politically, um, we, we had the news story just a little bit ago about the, the teenagers that were from Covington High School and they were on the steps at, I believe it was the Lincoln Memorial. Native American man is playing the drums, uh, a Vietnam veteran. And you had black Hebrew Israelites. Uh, I guess it's a religious group. I had never heard of them. And before the Native American man got there, um, it seems that the, the Israelite group was yelling some rather uncharitable things uh, and racist things, offensive things. Um, and you had high schoolers kind of react like high schoolers. Um, and, and in this, obviously, there's things that were not very sensitive culturally, even though this, some of the students were trying to react peacefully. Um, but you had this, this blew up, and you had people that immediately were in camps. And I'll admit, I myself had a pretty visceral reaction right away, too. I still don't like that kid's smile. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but, uh, but that's, that's for— I, Mine was just like, where in the world was the chaperone there? Right. And you that's know? what I kept going back and to. I would is, not, you know, and like, don't buy the mag, mag you know, the— Make America Great hat right there. Right, let's you not know, get the MAGA just, hat. It's know. March for Life. It's not partisan. Let's not. But um, but it is what it is. But I mean that. I think that image and that controversy really captures a lot of 
where identity politics has taken us and where it, I, I get afraid sometimes it might take us. And so maybe, Mike, any thoughts you have on that, a reaction yeah. to it? But but here, I mean, this is a, a civil rights movement, and it's a movement that's concerned with specific groups, and especially here um, with the treatment of African Americans in America. Um, but King's call, King's challenge was not one just for blacks or just for whites, and it was not one um, that, that based truth or authority in power or identity, um, but in something more. And I think that's what you got at with the Let the Bird Fly post, and you've got, you've got at a little bit here. Yeah, I think so. You know, uh, you know uh, white, poor, rural people have something to owe to MLK Jr. too. And I've always said that the, there's, there's more in common between the ghetto and the small town in Kentucky than either of them have to su- the suburb- suburbia. I was, and I was just briefly, I was talking to someone else the other day, and I, I tried to bring up that point. A big part of America's history has been pitting the poor white working class against um, other minorities or even the poor working class, maybe, because, you know, you could substitute the Irish for African-Americans mm-hmm. or for the Chinese or for Hispanics um, to pit groups against each other to keep those groups from actually saying, hey, we all kind of got a rough time here. And we're all maybe being treated in a way that's inconsistent with the expressed values of our country. And I think the Democrat Party has failed to realize that in the recent elections. And I think the Republican Party has failed to realize um, that for longer than that, maybe. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> and, and that's that identity politics, too. Like you said, it's not really historical. Uh, that idea of defining myself by my gender, my race, my sexual orientation, that's really a modern and even phenomenon. And like po- even a postmodernist like Foucault opposed excessive labeling like that. Yeah, and it's just, it's just not going to end well because you can't... I mean, I can maybe change my mind and become more liberal or more conservative, um, but I can't, it's going to be very hard for me to change my ethnicity at this point. Like, mm, impossible. E- you know, even in even our postmodern world says to the the white girl who says, "I'm actually a black man." Nah, no, you're not. Right. So that identity politics is is just so foreign to Christianity. It's so foreign, I think, to the best of Western civilization, and it just doesn't make sense. With that said. Um, I, I would imagine that a lot of, of, of white Christian people would say, yeah, identity politics is stupid. Well, you're just as guilty as that as anybody else. You know, I'm a Southern, I'm a Southern boy, I'm this or whatever. And that's all fine and great. And there's good things in all of those different, you know, we should, we should be proud of our ethnicities and, and our cultures. Um, but if, if I don't see myself first as human um, and sinner saint, um, there is something definitely wrong there, not just from a practical point of view, but certainly from a Christian theological point of view. Um, and we were before we we do have a few minutes left, but um, it was really great on this. Uh, Jacob Smith had a nice sermon, phenomenal sermon um, on this um, for the Sunday before would have been before MLK Day. So the, if we think of it, hopefully Peter and I yeah, can remember to link that. The, in the Sunday channel. after Epiphany, and um, so it's on the Calvary St. George uh, Parish Facebook page. W- worth a, worth a listen. Um, God, did, I don't know if he said this or somebody else, but you know, God didn't, and I'm paraphrasing. God didn't make you blue or red, right? <laughs> and that, that's always a frustrating thing for me that the politics really, 
the Democrat, the, the, the political party is the first identity politics, right? So I, you know, is there room for a pro-life Democrat? Slim. Is there a room for, on the Republican side, somebody who says, you know, maybe we don't have, maybe we can be a little bit stricter on gun control or, or pick maybe your it's issue. okay to be a, you know, have be concerned with the poor in a way beyond maybe what we've expressed right. in the past. Or, um, you know, I think of Michigan Democrats of the past where you could have a Democrat who's pro life, even pro gun, mm-hmm. but then pro union yeah, or right. pro, um, you know, concern for the poor. And we talked about that. I actually just brought this up in worship class when we we're talking about, uh, you know, tradition and stuff like that. And tradition's a neutral root word. Old's a neutral word. New's a neutral word. Um, you have to judge something, a particular thing, on its merits on its own. You don't throw it away because it's old. You don't accept it just because it's new and vice versa. So I should not just, I, we started thinking clearly. I shouldn't just think in terms of that's my party. I should think about the actual issue. In the same way, I shouldn't just think about that's my ethnicity. I should think about the issue on its own merits. And thinking clearly like that is not our forte right now and probably is the only way where we can pull ourselves out of this um, from, a, from a secular point of view anyway. Yeah, and I, I, you know, and we, we can have another episode on the two-party system in America, and I think it's unfortunate in a number of ways. Um, but we can easily turn those parties and those platforms into idols and also think we have to fit our Christian convictions, our personal experiences um, into those platforms. And I think that can really stifle thought and, and lead us not to appreciate the richness of the scriptures. And then we don't vote on the content of somebody's character. We vote on yep. their loyalty to a party and... That becomes very difficult because there's only two choices. And it can lead to something where, you know, think of what we do with with some of Jesus' teachings, uh, where we can focus on sexual modesty but lose all sense for economic modesty. And vice versa. Yeah, and and back and forth, and and Jesus had plenty to say about both. Mike, if you don't mind, I got a, a, a passage to finish it off with unless you have anything else. But, you know, just as we wrap up, you know, the gospel does not erect boundaries, the gospel knocks them down. And I think that's very important for us to remember. Our baptism makes us part of a uh, extremely diverse uh, community, and it impels us then to go out into other communities as well. And so I'm sure some are going to listen to this and say, oh, they're being social justice or or whatever else. And I guess if you're at this point and you think that, um, the thing I would say is, A, maybe we were, um, we can turn even the best things into uh, a reason to seem pious, uh, but but B maybe ask why you think that. What what in you, right, instinctually, uh, has that that take? Um, but Dr. King in Letter from a Birmingham Jail is talking about the rise of the black nation- nationalist groups. Uh, he mentions Elijah Muhammad. Um, we can think of early Malcolm X stuff like that as well. But he says. Uh, Nourished by the Negro's frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination, this movement, the black national movement, is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and have concluded that the white man is an incorrigible devil. And that's what King is speaking against, um, against losing hope in America, 
Um, America, some of America is things we stuff we should lose hope in, right? We have to ask ourselves what we're talking about when we're talking about America. There's there's plenty of shameful things in the past, but here he's talking about America as the ideals. Mike has talked about these liberal, not like liberal conservative, but liberal like a free man. These ideals that that we um, have expressed as as a country, um, but also. What has led some people then at that time and even today to repudiate Christianity is stuff that isn't Christianity at all, right? So they, they, they've lost, they haven't, no one's given them the kernel of Christianity. And I think in that it shows, it's a good reminder for all of us that the Christian at the end of the day is an optimist. And I think that's what King calls us to be. Um, as an American Christian, there's lots in our um, in our founding documents, in our um America is, we are not an ethnic country, right? We're based on an idea, a social contract. There's a lot in there for us to be optimistic about and to want to uphold and to think that this can really impel us forward. Um, But at the end of the day, too, to recognize that our Christianity, um, as I said, our baptism, uh, Christ's cross knocks down the divides and really uh, positions us in a way that we ought to, of all people, be those who want to have a life and experience here that expresses, reflects in some way uh, what we will one day know in heaven. I think Jacob Smith did a good job in that sermon that hopefully we'll remember to link. Uh, But otherwise, Mike, I'll let you close it out. Yeah, I think uh, finally when you look back at, you say, um, the struggles that we've had as our nation and you look at our own situation, you cannot help but think, wow, we're really sinful. And then to be reflected on yourself and say, yeah, but as you said, and it's remarkable that King was as optimistic as he was, I wouldn't have been. Um, we, we are not finally pessimists, even though we have a theology of the cross and we understand the total depravity of man. We're actually the eternal optimists because we know it doesn't depend on us at all. And so I do... You and I do look forward to one day um, where we fully enjoy what God has already proclaimed us to be, and that is one in Christ. And uh, even though we can't enjoy the fullness of it down here in a fallen world, we know we do have it. And those are those are pretty special moments when you can think about those with people who um, are different than, than you. Uh, we are given this freedom, this gospel freedom down here on earth. And so even though we do live in a fallen world, it's been given back to us. And so friends, go let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down, Get in my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink I set them up, another round I set them up, another round I set them up, another round One more round won't get me down